I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thanks for coming. I would like to begin by brutally using or misusing this opportunity since, ironically, we are at London Review of Books bookstore and there were some uh, letters from the readers replying to a text of mine published some, a month ago in London Review of Books, a text which somehow gives a partial view precisely on the topic of this book. I would like just briefly to reply to those Criticisms plus, I would like to do something maybe considered unfair, but that's life. In tomorrow's independent, my best friend Simon Critchley's uh, review of this book will appear. And that's life, KGB, I got the text, so I will reply a little bit also to that one. And then I will try to do, if you will have enough patience, something which I hope will be at least minimally interesting to you. I will first... Talking with my friends and so on, I noticed three, four standard criticisms of this book and more generally of my, my God, what horrible word, political thinking of last years, like the, the, the suspicious character of my critique of democracy or concerning this book, to be, put it brutally, that I didn't do my homework, you know, in the Hannah Arendt way, distinguishing different uh, different aspects of violence or between violence and authority, violence and power and so on. And then I would like to add to something really new I haven't yet dealt with, especially the problem which I find very interesting of what kind of psychic, psychological consequences has have new forms of violence emerging today. I will be referring here to a book which I hope will be soon translated into English, Catherine Malabou, the one who wrote, I think, what is arguably one of the best books of Hegel ever written, uh, The Future of Hegel, L'Avenir de Hegel. Uh, what's so interesting is that this book, as you can see from Derrida's foreword, literally, and here you can see that Derrida was an honest guy, he admitted it. Uh, she, just before his death, Derrida's death, single-handedly, as it were, if I simplify it a little bit, converted Derrida to Hegel. She, the book is a systematic reading of Hegel, proving implicitly, sometimes and explicitly, how in his standard criticism of Hegel, Derrida misses the point. And then Derrida, you can see, is totally intrigued by her book. Okay, she now wrote a wonderful new book, uh, The New Blessed. Sorry, my God, what stupid. You will see this, if there ever was a Freudian sleep, this is it. Le Nouveau Blessé, The New Wounded. 
Sorry, not black. Slide. Okay. Uh, about uh, the new traumatized personality emerging. So if I, if it would have been possible to run, to walk backwards in time and add something to this book, I would have added precisely a more systematic chapter on psychological consequences of today's, this anonymous, quasi-natural impact of violence. So let me begin. Some of you knew that there were first three and then one, four letters attacking me for that peace uh, resistance is surrender. Uh, maybe the first thing, if you maybe read, the attacks on me that I couldn't help noticing is that, I'm sorry to bore you with, again, this old story that I always repeat. It was already in the title of one of my books, you remember, The Iraqi Borrowed Cattle. That is to say, enumerating uh, contradictory, mutually exclusive arguments. So I wondered how, as a reply to a short text of mine, one page of this, in four letters I am attributed, I mean, they attribute to me the following positions. First, my advice to the left is, literally, uh, do nothing, sit in front of your TV and watch violence, but do nothing. Whatever you do, it's wrong. Second letter attributes me a position of abandon all non-realistic pseudo-radical measures, become pragmatic, just realistic dealing with power and so on, Third one, the third reproach is uh, that I support power crazy mad dictators like Chavez and so on and so on. So isn't it interesting? Like, how could it be that as a reply to the same text, three positions are attributed to me which are totally exclusive. Pragmatism doing nothing plus uh, supporting... Uh, power met dictators, and so on. Uh, then the fourth letter by David Graeber is even, in the last London Review of Books, is even more uh, interesting where this is how he attributes, I mean, I'm just, you know, if I were to be even more than I already am, I'm aware, if I were to be in my appearance even more close to those crazy, uh, crazy uh, cartoons, characters, and so on, then you would see now me, you know, uh, the, the eyes popping out. <laughs> Because, look, he says, describing me, uh, when you shave away the posturing, his, mine, real message is that intellectuals have always been and always must be horse, horse-like prostitutes, not horses, horse to power. He can't quite come out and say this, so he conveys it in a series of rhetorical maneuvers and so on and so on. What shocks me? is that this exactly, so I'm a little bit perplexed, I must say, this exactly is what I am systematically attacking for years. Maybe I'm wrong here, but my reproach to those whom I call, maybe with a little bit of vicious irony, resistance, the Simon Critch, this infinitely demanding resistance, it's precisely that that's their implicit presupposition. As Simon says, I'm still on talking terms with him, so this is a friendly debate. Even if I will shoot him, it will be like Brecht said in that poem, with a good gun in a good earth. And, and so, okay, so uh, isn't his thesis is precisely that, uh, that we should withdraw for power, that power corrupts. 
And he even goes, as I quote him, maybe you remember, as far as saying that, that the moment you fight back to power, the moment you accept the game of power, you start to imitate it, you get caught into it, and so on and so on. So quite on the contrary, I think that that's the position that I'm attacking. I think that the idea that when you start to mess with real power, you prostitute yourself as an intellectual, I think that if the term ideology has any meaning, this is the zero-level intellectualist ideology of intellectuals today. This safe position, don't mess with it, and so on and so on. So that's the first thing that I find slightly uh, strange. Then, okay, not to lose power, I have other more interesting things to say. Let me go on with uh, uh, Critchley's critique that you can read tomorrow. It begins, Zizek concludes the book with an apology for what he calls, following Walter Benjamin, divine violence. The latter, divine violence, is understood theoretically as the heroic assumption of the solitude of the sovereign decision. This is incidentally a quote, for, uh, uh, quote from uh, Benjamin, not me. Practically, Zizek illustrates this with the examples of the radical Jacobin violence of Robespierre in France, in the 1790s and the invasion of the dispossessed a decade or so ago, descending from the favelas in Rio de Janeiro to disturb the peace of the bourgeois neighborhoods which border on them, and so on and so on. Incidentally, uh, why doesn't he add more actual examples like Evo Morales, Chavez, and so on and so on that, that I also quote? But what comes now, it's more interesting. I quote, but in a final twist, Zizek counsels us to do nothing in face of the objective systemic violence of the world. We should just sit and wait and have the courage to do nothing. The book ends with the words, sometimes doing nothing is the most violent thing to do. True enough, but what can this possibly mean? At the core of Zizek's relentless, indeed manic, production of books, articles and lectures is a fantasy, I think, what psychoanalysts would call an obsessional fantasy. Incidentally, I would like to find one analyst who ever used this term. Okay, doesn't matter. Uh, so that's my position. On the one hand, I quote again, the only authentic stance to take in dark times is to do nothing, to refuse all commitment, to be paralyzed like Melville's Bartleby. On the other hand, Zizek dreams of a divine violence, a cataclysmic purifying violence of the sovereign ethical deed, something like Sophocles' Antigone. And then, the final judgment on me, I quote, behind its shimmering inversions, Zizek's work leaves us in a fearful and fateful deadlock. The only thing to do is to do nothing. We should just sit and wait. As the great Dane, Hamlet says, readiness is all, but the truth is that Zizek is never ready. His work lingers in endless postponement and overproduction. He ridicules others' attempts at thinking about commitment, resistance and action. I confess we have crossed words recently while, uh, and, and he goes on, while me doing nothing himself. What sustains his work is a dream of divine violence, cruelty and force. I hope that one day his dreams come true. Well, I hope for him then not, because then he will get a one-way ticket to Siberia. Okay, but that's another point. Now, did you see the irony? First, I cannot just kind of a common sense reaction. You know how he ridicules other attempts at thinking about commitment and action while doing nothing himself, and then implying him among these others. My God, you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but was he ever 
uh, how should I put it, involved in any, like not signing academic protests and participating in safe demonstrations, but in any real commitment which brings even a little bit of danger, like a danger of losing job or whatever. So, but the thing which really bothers me is, and now I come to a theoretical point, how he falsifies my point. The quote, my quote is saying just, uh, sometimes doing nothing is the most violent thing to do. What do I mean by this? My God, I explain. And then you see where he is wrong, where he says, on the one hand, I preach do nothing. On the other hand, I dream of divine violence. No. My point is that something, doing nothing, as I say in the quote itself, is the most violent thing to do. In what sense? My critique of some of the leftists' protests is that they effectively are obsessional. But you know in what sense? And here I will be mockingly self-critical in a personal way. What, why is so-called obsessional activity a wrong activity, a pseudo-activity? Because you are active all the time, not to achieve something, but precisely so that nothing changes. That's the paradox of an obsessional neurotic. And maybe you heard this old joke of me, I certainly accept the timeline like that as a private person. I remember when I was doing analysis, as you can expect it, I, I was wildly talking all the time. Why? Because I was terribly afraid that if I shut up for a minute, the analyst may ask me some truly troubling question, no? I was talking all the time, not that something would happen, but to prevent, to, get, to prevent anything truly dangerous, traumatic from exploding. And unfortunately, and I'm not even saying here anything very revolutionary, if you want a much better formulated version of this criticism of the, of the politically correct left, you find it, for example, in some wonderful writings, which, if I remember correctly, I quote them towards the end in the fifth chapter of the book from George Orwell, made the same nice point already in the late 30s, how, how the radical left demands change, but does it in such a way, just, they demand, you know, the idea is if we demand it loudly enough, maybe nothing will really change, how should I put it, no? And I'm just making this simple point, and all I'm saying is that we should be critically aware that often our activity, even if it is critical activity, can not only do, not only not really hurt those in power, but provide a kind of legitimization and effectively sustain them. And I'm speaking here from uh, even my personal political past, for example, I remember in the early 80s, those half-dissident years in ex-Yugoslavia, when those in power, communists in power, started to, to suspect that they are losing, they terribly wanted dialogue. We got invitation from the Central Committee, please come to us, let's debate, and so on and so on. At that point, to truly scare them was to do nothing. They really got into, they, they were, no matter what you told them, you could criticize them, you are worse than Stalin, Yugoslav communism was more uh, hypocritical and so on and so on. They just wanted, it's what my good friend, the Austrian leftist philosopher, Robert Faller, called the, you know, in boxing, you call this clinching, I think, no? When the opponent, to prevent you hitting him, embraces you, gets too close. That's what power likes to do. And sometimes, 
This is what I mean. And I'm not saying we should just be doing this all the time. And I even think every normal leftist knows this. this. When should we be pragmatic? When should we be violent? When should we do nothing? My God, this is a matter of concrete circumstances and so on. For, no, I'm not saying we do nothing. For example, I was often criticizing uh, Chavez, calling him even mockingly the, the fiddle with oil and so on and uh, with American dollars. But I must say that in a way I sympathize with what he is doing now, precisely when he is accused of, 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 uh, of you know, like brutally uh, violating democratic rules and so on. This brings me to the central thesis of this book, the gap between subjective and systemic objective violence. Of course, his acts are violent, non-democratic, but my God, as if, if you abstract from his acts, the situation in Venezuela is some kind of, how to put it, objective democratic balance. My God, you know, it's not that he has some kind of a monopoly. He has one TV station, the majority of the press is against him and so on and so on. Yes, I totally support him. You twist arms a little bit. You close down one station, you do that. Sorry, why not? The, the, the true problem is, but he is desperately trying to do something. Seriously, I think everything will be decided in how he will succeed in, I'm here rather a pessimist if you ask me, but let's hope that something will come out. Everybody knows, even there, it's no mystery, what will, what will decide the fate of all of it. She tries desperately to somehow combine a strong state, even with dictatorial elements, and my God, I don't have any problems with that, if he's also, if one takes into account also what he's doing on the other hand, which is trying somehow to combine state power with what we call in these old terms autonomous self-organization of the people in favelas and so on and so on, with popular self-organization. He's desperately experimenting, and this interests me much more than his, you know, big scandals which are then, which are then reported in the media, I don't know what did he say about Bush and all that stuff. This desperate attempts at reorganizing daily life, finding a new form of functioning of state power, which will somehow effectively be in even sometimes tension dialogue with integrate forms of what we sometimes naively called immediate democracy, local councils and so on and so on. And I think, my God, he is really doing something here. Of course, he is lucky having the American mostly dollars, but why shouldn't he use this luck? And I think that the situation is even more interesting here in, as I wrote already about it briefly somewhere, in, in, in Bolivia. I think that in Bolivia this problem is even more, more, more radical. That, again, what they are trying to do, Chavez, Morales and so on, is basically this to integrate into not only state but public political space those silent excluded crowds of people in favelas of the na native natives and so on and so on. I mean, my God, I, I totally support them here. So no, I'm definitely not saying if you are today, if you are today in, uh, in, uh, in Venezuela or, uh, Bol or Bolivia, do nothing. I, on the contrary, uh, in the text, to which all these reactions uh, appeared, I quote, I refer there to Chavez, Morales, and so on, precisely as 
a test for Critchley. When, when Critchley writes in his book, Infinitely Demanding, we should not grab state power, we should withdraw into the interstices of power. So, for example, let's brutally apply this to today's Venezuela. What would be Critchley's advice to Chavez? No, no, power will corrupt you, you will become like them, withdraw to the interstices of power or whatever. No, when there is a chance, we should ruthlessly use it. All I'm saying is we should be ruthlessly pragmatist here. You do local democracy, you do state terror, you do whatever. Why not? I think we should reject this pseudo-moral principle debates. Is it legal to do this? Everything is legal, my God, if you do it in a proper way. Okay, uh, so uh, here, okay, but uh, not to lose time here, so I hope you got my point. I'm very specific when I say in the last uh, sentence of the book, I think, sometimes. When is this sometimes? Sometimes, this brings us to the basic thesis of the book, which could be uh, uh, condensed in this way, that uh, usually when we talk about violence, we automatically reduce violence to violent change. Like, you know, something, a situation reproduces itself, then something violently intrudes. But what about violence which should be practiced all the time, not so that things change, but so that they remain the way they are? I want to see that violence. And especially in what way sometimes by being active we participate in it. This is even, my God, this is even an old liberal thesis. For example, in spite of all the stupidities he is doing now, I, Václav Havel, the Czech ex-president, I still have a great respect for his old text, The Power of the Powerless. You remember that famous figure of the grocery store seller uh, who privately tells jokes, is against the system, but obeys the ritual. You know, you put the slogan into the window and so on and so on. This should be the focus. How? Through our engagement, this or that way in everyday life, we sustain power and to change that. So let's, to conclude this introduction and then move to more serious theory, let me begin with, uh, let me just mention that problematic point, Iraq war protests. My God, I participated in them. So it's not that I'm saying they are wrong and so on. All I'm saying is that, and I have always this cynical criteria, criterion, uh, that what bothered me is this smug satisfaction from all sides, you know, like, Protesters were nice. Oh, we showed them that people do not really not support invasion of Iraq. Millions are against it. And those in power were able to say, oh, my God, uh, you see how open we are. We even allow demonstrations and so on. You remember, I always refer to it, that wonderful statement, which sounds as a bad joke, but unfortunately there is a truth in it. You know, when they asked President Bush how he feels about that, you know what was his answer? I... Perfect. This is why we are going to Iraq, so that things like this could happen also in Iraq, and so on and so on. The problem for me is that, uh, is that those demonstrations didn't scare enough those in power. I'm not saying we should kill, but I think we should scare them. You, so what would I have done, people asked me. The same demonstrations, but maybe in a slightly different way. I would try to be more Gandhian. I think that in the way I talk about violence, Gandhi was for me basically very violent. In what sense? Of course, not in the sense of killing and so on, but 
all these strikes, mass movement he organized, these were not just demonstrations through economic sabotage and so on. He started to stop, to prevent the smooth functioning of the British machinery there. It was not just we state our opinion. He knew very well what he was doing. What I would have done, if you ask me frankly, okay, what would you have done three years ago or when? I would try to do something from totally crazy things, like if you ask me sometimes, like, why not start a mass movement? Ken Livingstone would maybe support it, that every family should bring, uh, 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 should bring a, a, a bowl of shit and drop it in front of Downing Street on foreign coffee. You know, to create some embarrassment. Like, can you imagine there on, on Whitehall, like, uh, hundreds of tons of shit or whatever, to, okay, from these slightly comical examples to, I don't know, blocking ports or whatever, you know, just to make them afraid a little bit just to not killing, make them afraid, to, to stop them or some kind of other boycotting or whatever. Why also I often ask myself the most, did it happen here or in another country? Because, for example, when transport workers strike, the problem is always that you hurt the wrong guy, no? You hurt ordinary customers. But I don't know, was it this in UK? Correct me if I'm wrong. I think the one, or did they do it in France? It was an excellent invention. Work went on, only they didn't accept money from passengers. So, of course, the strike had the full support of the people and so on. You know, that you should always remember this. You don't kill, but it should hurt. It should hurt, it should scare them, those in power. So again, I'm, not, I'm absolutely not saying doing nothing. I'm just saying ask with your every activity. Does it really scare them, or it's just that, in a way, even if it's critical, it reproduces them. Okay, enough of this, now we start working. Uh, the first, now critical points made to me. The first is my critique of the liberal logic of understanding the other. I think I elaborate this in one of the, the second chapter, I think, you know. I mock that famous uh, uh, tolerant multiculturalist statement, the enemy is someone, someone whose story we didn't hear. And then I say this works abstractly when you are dealing with other races, sexual orientations, but that basically this is nonsense in the sense of would you also say that Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to... No, my conclusion here is, uh, my conclusion here is uh, in, at two levels more radical. First, I think that stories we are telling ourselves about ourselves, the way we experience the situation, is not a level of truth. This is lie. We lie ourselves. So I think that justice means precisely that we should be, how should I put it, story blind. You did this. It was a horrible thing. And don't bring me all that shit now about how you experienced it and so on and so on. On the contrary, we should precisely ignore stories. With stories, you can, you can justify whatever you want. My second point is uh, that... Uh, I think we should reject this typical liberal black, blackmail in, implied in this, the enemy is someone whose story we didn't hear, about understanding. As if, you know, we have intolerance because we don't really understand the other, we should listen to other story, understand them. Of course, we cannot ever do it, and this always, liberals are natural superego masochists, no? They always feel good when they have a task which they never can fully meet, like understand the other. Of course you cannot. There is always some stupid small nation or orientation that you can't understand. Oh, now I feel guilty. I should read more and so on. It's totally false problematic. 
I am a misanthropic person. I don't want to understand everyone, my God. I just want to live decently, peacefully with people. The problem today is not to understand everybody. It's how to live in a decent, respectful way with people whom you don't understand. I mean, it's, we should reject it. That's the first. Second problematic point. My critique of democracy. What do I really uh, imply here? It's a kind of a... I agree with some conservative critiques, but not even conservative. Uh, the first one who developed not so much this critique, this notion of, critical notion of democracy was, you know, the great icon of American journalism, Walter Lippmann, already. And in, incidentally, in his foreign political reports, he was very honest, progressive. You know that he already in the early 20s. He advocates uh, uh, a fair policy towards Soviet Union and so on and so on. But he had a radical theory of democracy and incidentally, that's a nice irony, maybe some of you know it, maybe others not, he, Walter Lippmann, coined the term manufacturing consent, which later used by uh, uh, Chomsky. The irony is that he, Walter Lippmann, means it in a positive way. His theory is a very simple one. It is that uh, a governing class must rise to face the challenge. The challenge is, here, Lippmann as Plato saw the public as a great beast of a, or a bewildered herd. The challenge of floundering in the chaos of local opinions. So the herd of citizens must be governed by a specialized class whose interests reach beyond the locality. This elite class is to act as a machinery of knowledge that circumvents the primary defect of democracy, the impossible ideal of the omnipotent citizen. I think that whatever we say, de facto, that's my thesis, de facto, in a large majority of cases, this is how what we call in our societies democracy functions. We don't really want to decide. We want somebody, X, to propose us a decision. We want just to save the appearance. We want to feel as if we decide, but without the true pressure of deciding what there is. We want just, as Hegel said about constitutional monarch, to dot the I. And this is why when people are really, when this intellect, uh, this opinion-making elite collapses, then on the one hand we can have a genuine democratic self-organization, but more often than not we get a chaos, we get a panic. So uh, I am, if, so uh, uh, my point is that you know when people say in democracy every ordinary citizen should be a king. Yes, but I claim a king in a as a king in a constitutional democracy, a king who only formally decides. No, like, you know but that in democracy, so, uh, the problem of monarchy and democracy, it's a wonderful problem, they were already aware of it in early modernity, of effectively the king shouldn't decide. But the problem was like how to save the appearances, how to, how to save the dignity of the king, so that it appears that he or she or it whatever decides. And there were complicated rituals of saving the appearance. 
It's a wonderful topic. So what I am saying, you get my point. My point is not that I'm criticizing democracy. My first point here is simply a descriptive one. I claim that what we call effectively today democracy is for the majority of people in their innermost self-experience, they don't want to decide. They want to be clearly told how to decide and to save the appearance that they are doing it. In this sense, Trotsky, which I edited, was right. When he criticized democracy, his point is precisely this one. Not that democracy pacifies the masses too much and then we need the leading communist party to tell them what, but on the contrary, that democracy, the way it's practiced, uh, pacifies the people too much. And I think this crisis is exploding especially today, so that you will not accuse me that I'm doing nothing. For example, in the Czech Republic, now, two months ago, three, I was <coughs> in Prague participating in some big demonstration, even addressing the people there <coughs> against these U.S. Army raiders. And I was shocked what was the official accusation of the government against them. Uh, 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 the uh, government representative rejected calls for a referendum. What all, what all these protesters demanded is simply a referendum. Should these NATO radars be installed there or not? Because they claim, of course, it's true, everybody knows, over 70% of the people are against. So uh, the government representative said that one does not decide with voting about such a sensitive national security matter. They should be left to military experts. But if one follows this logic, then what? Why should then people decide about economy? Shouldn't it also be left to experts and so on and so on? Uh, so what's the problem here? I think now I move a little bit more into theory. Here we can see how Lacan is nonetheless useful in political analysis. Where? Because here Lacan proposes in his seminar, which was a year ago on when you remember translated into English on the other side of psychoanalysis about four discourses, People didn't notice, I don't know almost anyone who noticed it, that the main implicit target of that seminar is Michel Foucault. That is to say, Michel Foucault's thesis of knowledge power. Foucault more or less to simplify to the utmost equates them. You know, knowledge is power, not in this naive Auguste Comte sense, but the way you organize, the way your knowledge maps. Reality is always sustaining a center power, embodies power through... You know, maybe some of you even much better than me. In clear contrast to Foucault, the whole thesis of Lacan is that modernity is characterized by, a, on the contrary, a disjunction between knowledge and power. That we have an excess of knowledge, not of true knowledge, but of what is experiences, knowledge, experts, and so on, which, uh, which prevents power in the Lacanian sense of master signifier decisions and so on and so on. I think we have a little bit of that with ecology. The problem from, from our ordinary people's perspective, it's not that we don't know enough. In a way, we even know too much. You know, the picture gets, gets so blurred, so complex, so that you simply, it paralyzes you. You cannot, uh, uh, you cannot decide. And I think that here, what this excess of knowledge gives rise to is 
religion. I think this is one of the main resources of religion today. What religion really promises is to somehow contain this bursting technological and so on, scientific knowledge in manageable limits. No, things will still have sense and so on and so on. Okay, let me go on. This is, again, my second point, where Lacan is really useful. Gap, on the, not knowledge power, but there is... Uh, uh, there is a clivage, uh, uh, a gap, a rupture between the two in modernity. Uh, the third reproach to me is, as I already mentioned it, okay, okay, but I didn't do my ho homework. I use the term violence in a profuse, general way, ignoring precise distinctions. This is what I often hear from friends. I claim, no, first I did do my homework. In my other books I wrote already about Arendt's on violence where we all know how she elaborates precise distinctions between power, which is, uh, no, sorry, force, which is simply like force of nature or force of circumstances. We have a force in society when it's simply an, an, an un humanly uncontrollable force of circumstances, while power is always a function of human relations. Then, of course, we have authority, which is a specific source of power. It represents power vested in a person by virtue of their capacities, office, symbolic function, whatever. And then we have violence, which is also not the same as natural catastrophes, but violence in the sense of invading our, the other space of freedom. And, uh, of course, where Hannah Arendt is at her best is how she opposes authority and violence, claiming that true authority doesn't need violence. Violence is precisely the resource of those who do not have, who have neither power nor authority. This is a nice point, incidentally, to throw a new light on today's so-called uh, terrorist attacks and so on. Okay, we could go on here. I agree with all these distinctions. What I find problematic, nonetheless, in Arendt is that she leaves all too much out of consideration the necessary short circuits between different levels, between power and social violence. For example, an economic crisis which causes devastation is experienced as uncontrollable quasi-natural force. But isn't the whole point of critique of ideology that what appears it just happened, uncontrollable as part of the system, should be nonetheless read as violence? Or even uh, an example known to all of us, I hope, which concerns the relationship between authority and violence. Isn't the whole, if there is one point of feminism, in spite of my, often I admit it, bad taste jokes about feminism, but there is one point where I totally support it. Isn't, if I think, if one can condense all of feminism into one thesis, is that, is to unmask the male authority as violence. To say, no, it's not any natural authority, it's sustained by violent imposition. To see violence beneath authority. No wonder then that Arendt uses her distinctions to criticize Marx. Because I think that what we can still learn in Marx, and this is maybe even one of the fundamental premises of, uh, of uh, critique of ideology, that when you have a figure of authority to reinterpret to when does, how does a woman become a feminist by saying to 
mage who oppressed her, no, it's not your authority, it's violent what you are doing, to reread uh, it as violence. Okay, uh, next point mocked by some of my critics, communism. In what sense I still am a communist? I am. Let me quote you, I already used it at some colloquium, you were not there, so I will quote it, this is the poetry that I like, from Alain Badiou's new book, a quote on Sarkozy, I quote, I translate it from French. The communist hypothesis remains the good one. I do not see any other. If we have to abandon this hypothesis, then it is no longer worth doing anything at all in the field of collective action. Without the horizon of communism, without this idea, there is nothing in the historical and political becoming of any interest to a philosopher. Let everyone bother about his own affairs and let us stop talking about it. In this case, the red man is right. Redman Lomora is incidentally Badiou's name for Sarkozy. And he was already, of course, attacked for this, for anti-Semitism, my God. No? Claiming that when you call somebody a Redman, it evokes all, all anti-Semitic cliches and so on. The Redman is right, as is, by the way, the case with some ex-communists who are either avid of their rents or who lost courage. However, to hold on to the idea, to the existence of this hypothesis, does not mean that we should retain its first form of presentation, which was centered on property and state. In fact, what is imposed on us as a task, even as a philosophical obligation, is to help a new mode of existence of the hypothesis to deploy itself. So, again, I think that today, in the antagonisms which I see as pressing, I think we, should we can precisely discover the communist dimension. What do I mean by this? Maybe you know already my theory. I see the whole series of antagonisms. One is, for example, the ecology. Ecology, what's the problem of ecology? It's precisely ecology is the problem of commons. What here I agree with Hart and Negri of commons. We have a space of commons, our common inheritance. The problem is how to keep it at the level of commons, not to privatize it. And of course, which I use here, I will not talk too much, uh, just briefly, that I use here the term private in the Kantian sense of private use of reason. I think if ever some thought, some Kant's idea was useful, it is his idea of how he opposes private and public use of reason. Where, as I hope you know, for Kant, Private use of reason is precisely what most of us would spontaneously call public use of reason. Private use of reason is for Kant, if you are a lawyer, a state functionary, a, a preacher or whatever, part of ideological mechanisms concerned with the functioning of the state, of public space and so on, uh, sorry, of state space. While public is for Kant precisely when you are in public space, for example, in free intellectual debates, where you withdraw from this private space, at that level of what theorists like Badiou, Ranciere, and so on, would have called singular universality, that you are universal when you withdraw from the private space of your particular community, to cut a long story short. And I think that then we have the problem of uh, today's cognitive capital, privatization of like intellectual property and so on. It's again the problem of, you know, what in the early modernity was called, especially in English, it was actual so-called enclosure of commons. I think this is to, what is happening massively today. Even I think biogenetics, basically it's about this. 
isn't our biogenetic inheritance, our shared, isn't it our shared commons? And I think that in all these domains, we are dealing with the dimension of commons. So what I would say is that at this level, again, with some other further conditions, of course, which I will not enumerate, I stick to the uh, notion of communism. Okay, now, not to lose time, I would like just to finish with two new theoretical developments. First one, what I already announced about psychic consequences of violence. Let me begin with a simple example. George Soros is an undoubtedly honest humanitarian. His Open Society Foundation, among other things, more or less single-handedly saved critical social thinking in post-communist countries. Yet, maybe some of you remember it, a decade or so ago, the same Soros engaged in speculations with the different rates between currencies and earned hundreds of millions, thereby causing great suffering in Southeast Asia and so on and so on. Hundreds of thousands losing jobs with all the consequences. This, I think, is today's abstract violence at its purest. On the one extreme, the financial speculations going on in their own sphere with no transparent links to the reality of human lives. On the other extreme, a pseudo-natural catastrophe. Suddenly you lose your job or whatever, which hits thousand like a kind of a social tsunami with no apparent reason at all. This is what fascinates me today, how you know. Somebody there does some speculation in this, his air-conditioned office, then something happens which is experienced as totally pseudo-natural dynamics. Now, what interests me is what are the psychological consequences of it? Here I come to Catherine Malabou's book. Her starting point, now a little bit of theory, is the fatal limitation of psychoanalysis. For Freud and Lacan, according to Malabou, external shocks, brutal unexpected encounters or intrusions, due their traumatic impact to the way they touch a pre-existing traumatic psychic reality. Recall, for example, Lacan's exemplary reading of the Freudian dream of Father, can't you see I'm burning? The contingent external encounter of the real, you know, the candle collapses and so on, uh, triggers the true real, the unbearable fantasy apparition of the dead child reproaching his father. In this way, every external trauma is sublated, in the Hegelian sense of Aufhebung, internalized, internalized. It owes its impact to the way a pre-existing real of psychic reality is stirred up, aroused through it. So, even the most violent intrusions of the external real, say, the shocking effect on the victims of bomb explosions in war, owe their traumatic effect to the resonance they find in perverse masochism, death drive, unconscious guilt feeling, and so on and so on. Here, in his writing about war, Freud is clear, it's true. For him, external shocking intrusions of violence, torture, even rape, in itself, has no psychic, it can destroy psyche, but as such doesn't count. It must, as it were, find resonance in some pre-existing frame of psychic reality. Now I return to Malabu. Today, however, according to her, our reality abounds with multiple versions of traumatic intrusions which are just that, meaningless, brutal interruptions which destroy the symbolic texture of subject's identity. First, there is the external physical violence, terror attacks, 
the U.S. shock and aid bombing of Iraq, street violence, rapes, but also natural catastrophes like earthquakes, tsunamis, and so on. Then there is the irrational, meaningless destruction of the material base of our inner reality, brain tumors, Alzheimer's, organic cerebral lesions, and so on. They can utterly change, destroy even, the victim's personality. Finally, there are the destructive effects of social symbolic violence, social exclusion, family abuse, and so on. So Malabu's basic reproach to Freud is that when confronted with such cases, Freud succumbs to the temptation of meaning. He is not ready to accept the direct efficiency of external shocks which destroy the psyche of the victim, or at least wounds it in an unredeemable way without finding resonance in a pre-existing psychic trauma. But, according to Malabu, isn't it obviously obscene to link, say, the psychic devastation of a Muslim, he means Musulman, the living dead in a Nazi camp, to his masochism, death drive, or guilt feeling? A Muslim, or a victim of multiple rape, or a victim of brutal torture, is not devastated by unconscious anxieties, but directly by a meaningless external shock which can in no way be hermeneutically integrated. You know, you cannot, you don't need this desperate point, this detour through some unconscious trauma. It's just direct efficiency. So, for the wounded brain, here is a quote from Malabu, there is no possibility to be present at its own fragmentation or at its own wound. In contrast to castration, there is no representation, no phenomenon, no example of separation which would allow the subject to anticipate, to wait for, to fantasize what can be a break in cerebral connections. One cannot even dream, even dream about it. There is no scene for this thing which is not one. The brain in no way anticipates the possibility of its own damage. When these damages occur, it is another self which is affected, a new self founded in misrecognition, end of quote. So again, for Freud, if external violence gets too strong, we simply exit the psychic domain proper. The choice is either the shock is reintegrated into a pre-existing libidinal frame or it destroys psyche and nothing is left. What Freud couldn't emphasize was that the victim, as it were, survives its own death. All different forms of traumatic encounters, independently of their specific natural, social, biological, symbolic nature, lead to the same result. A new subject emerges which survives the erasure of his her symbolic identity. There is no continuity between this new post-traumatic subject and its previous subjectivity. And we all know from descriptions the features of this subject. Lack of emotional engagement, profound indifference and detachment. It is a subject who is no longer in the world, in the Heideggerian sense of engaged, embodied existence. This subject lives death as a form of life. His life is death drive embodied, a life deprived of erotic engagements. And this holds for henchmen no less than for his victims. So, according to Malabu, if the 20th century was the Freudian century, the century of libido, so that even the worst nightmares were read as sadomasochist vicissitudes of the libido, the 21st century will be the century of post-traumatic, disengaged subject whose first emblematic figure was that of the Muslim in concentration 
camps. And this figure is now multiplying, again, in the guise of refugees, terror victims, survivors of national catastrophes, and so on. The feature that runs through all these figures is that the causes of the catastrophe remain libidinally meaningless, resisting any interpretation. The last quote from Malabu. The victims of sociopolitical traumas present today the same profile as the victims of natural catastrophes, tsunamis, earthquake, floods, floods, or grave accidents, serious domestic accidents, explosions, fires. We entered a new era of political violence where politics draws its, its resource from the renunciation to the political sense of violence. This erasure of sense is not only discernible in countries at war, it is present everywhere as the new face of the social, which bears witness to an unheard of psychic pathology, identical in all cases and in all contexts, globalized, end of quote. So, global capitalism generates a new form of illness which is itself global, global in the sense that it is in its appearance, indifferent to even the most elementary distinctions, like between nature and culture. Social conflicts are deprived of the dialectics of political struggle proper and become as anonymous as natural catastrophes. We are dealing with a weird mixture of nature and politics. Uh, Malabu is, I think, here at her theoretical best when she formulates a wonderful critique uh, of those brain scientists from the greatest at the beginning, and I appreciate him, Alexander Luria, the Soviet neurologist from the big hit today, Oliver Sacks, who, these critics, insist on the necessity to supplement the naturalist description of brain lesions with the subjective description of how this biological wound not only affects the subject's particular features, loss of memory and so on, but changes his or her entire psychic structure, like I really advise you to read it. It's a wonderful book. That Soviet classic from, I think, immediately after World War II, The Mind of a Mnemonist. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. By Luria, it's a study of some guy who uh, he's. Uh, pathology was that he couldn't forget anything. So, you know, in contrast to us who, when you have to remember something, you invent codes, you know, some meaningless uh, series, numbers, whatever, how to remember things. He had to practice forgetting. And 
this it's a short book, you, 60, 70 pages, but he focuses in a very nice way on how this guy subjectivized this. He became a kind of obsessional where his only way to survive was to think all the time about how he was basically the beast in the jungle character from Henry James. It's never it. He was always expecting something to happen which never happened. So what is Malabu's critique? A wonderful one, I think. She truly is a philosopher. It's that, and you can see this, I'm reading it now a little bit in diagonal, but with pleasure. Uh, Oliver Sacks' new on musicophilia, new book. You have a brain lesion, and then he's too humanist. In what sense? In the sense that he immediately focuses on how patients nonetheless survive, and then you have all this beauty of the man who mistook his wife for a hat, how you nonetheless, through the help of music, you build your new universe, like, you know, you cannot recognize faces, but if you associate them to melodies, you can, and so on, and so on. But Malabu says, but this is already recuperation. But he's very precise here. Something happens in between. There is a zero-level subject. That's what, according to her, Freud refused to theorize. For example, if you are, let's take a simple example. If you have some stupid brain lesion or whatever, you get totally disengaged, emotionally dead. You erase organically even all your past, but you are still a subject. And this zero-level subjectivity is the horror she's trying to survive. Not that, I say this in a benevolently ironic way, not that Oliver Sacks speech of awakening, how nonetheless through Schubert music, whatever, you, you find your way back. It, that is to say, not how you fight the loss, but the form of subjectivity, which is the form of loss itself which, again, according to Malabu, cannot be accounted for in the terms of uh, past traumas and so on. No, you are not... Psychoanalysis doesn't work here because... Traditional one, because the point is not to unearth some past traumas or whatever. There are none. You, all, your entire past is literally erased. You are a living dead. Uh, and I think she is deeply right in connecting this topic to Hegel, she's for me therefore unique. She's the only person whom I know who combines a detailed knowledge, and if I may say this even in a self-mockingly ironic way, like me, she's not bluffing here. She's really doing serious stuff with cognitivists. At the same time, she's a, how do you call it, card-carrying Hegelian, no? Uh, so, uh, okay, where do I not agree with her? I think that uh, psychoanalysis can be saved here. I think that she has a totally simplified theory of death drive and so on. I think that what she simply opposes death drive as this will to, and she reads death drive in a very naive way as opposed to libido, as if death drive means you want to die, disappear, whatever, and libido is this active catexis and so on. What she doesn't see is what, for example, Deleuze saw it wonderfully already in his difference and repetition. How? Uh, death drive and pleasure principle are not opposed, as you know, to principle are fighting in, but death drive is the transcendental a priori of pleasure principle itself. Death drive is just a kind of a, how should you put it, death drive is the very former structure of our libido. You know, what does it mean for Lacan death drive? It means this, you never get at your object directly. 
circulating around the object gives you more pleasure than going. This obstacle is inherent. So it's the very form of our libido. In this sense, I think one could say that precisely in the radical Freudian sense, this, the living dead are, it's like all pathological libido content is erased. What remains is the form of death drive as such. But that's another story. Before one does this Freudo-Lacanian narcissism of criticizing her, I think one should nonetheless recognize the raw power of her, of her, uh, of her analysis. I effectively think, again, that we are, when we are so massively confronting, again, at different levels, nature, culture, war, whatever, this new subject, literal subjects without subjectivity, like if you have a brain lesion or total trauma, you know, your past is erased, like, I had this unfortunate experience, if you have it, of some near to you, you know, what's so horrible is that when you have somebody with really heavy Alzheimer's or whatever, I mean, the problem is that you cannot play the cheaty humanist game, oh, it's still my good old grandma, no, it's not, it's a monster, it's another subject, it's not, you have to accept this, it's totally different subjectivity. All that remains is just the empty form. And uh, here I have a more elegant theory, which I don't have time to develop now. It is that I think that something of this nature happens is constitutive of subjectivity as such. That to become a subject means in a way to lose your substance. But that's Hegelian speculation. Now, if you allow me just another five minutes, uh, really, five minutes, to finish, I would like to repeat something which I already did at the Burbeck College, but since here, lecture, but since here the public is probably more mixed, general, I would love to, because the last question addressed to me almost is, okay, you play with all these paradoxes up and down, but where do you stand? In a very naive human way, what is your ethical position? Can you describe me? I mean, people often say to me, okay, it's easy for you to, to, to list people like, I don't know, all these big examples, Antigone, Medea, and so on, no? And I admit, sometimes I run into trouble here. The Elizabeth Wright, you know, the one who edited that uh, uh, reader on me and who tragically died of, uh, I think, uh, colonus cancer, no? I remember talking to her two years before her death, and she asked me this charmingly British empiricist naive question, reading my fragile absolute where I play all that with Medea and so on. She asked me, but I don't get it here. Do you think that to be really ethical in Lacanian sense, we have to kill our children or what? No. I, but I like naive questions. So... Let's approach it in a very naive way. Where do I stand? I did find a book which perfectly exemplifies how, I'm unfortunately not, I'm not perfect, but how in a perfect world I would like to be. It's a book by a Hungarian emigrant to, to Switzerland. I like already the name. This is what attracted me. First, I thought it's some, when a friend told me, I'm reading, I will tell you now the name, Agota Christoph. I thought, because the friend was East European, you know, it's kind of a, you know, like East Europeans mispronouncing Agatha Christie. I wanted to ask him, what are you reading? Death on the Nile and whatever. No, 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 no it's Agatha Christophe, not Agatha Christie. Uh, uh, she emigrated as a girl from Hungary in 56, then worked in a watch factory, it's like a caricature, in Switzerland, and then wrote a couple of very strange books. The best one is a trilogy uh, uh, of books, the notebook, the proof, the third lie. They are, they are, they are uh, 
available. I think you find them even here. It's Grove Press, New York, but I, I saw her here in Waterstone in Foils and so on. Uh, I think this is the best image on, not her, sorry, unfortunately. This is the best exemplification of immoral ethics, but wait a second, not in this boring, heroic, pseudo-Nietzschean sense where morality means be kind to others, ethics is your fidelity to yourself, so you have this great Nietzschean figure, pseudo-Nietzschean, I think, even, who can kill others, do whatever you want, but what matters is that you are ethical, faithful to yourself. No, I mean immoral ethics in a different, in a, in a different sense. Along the lines of Schiller's opposition of naive and sentimental, morals are sentimental, I think. Morality involves other in the sense that looking at myself through others' eyes, I like myself being good. Morality is, I'm helping you. Isn't it nice that I'm helping you? No. Morality is charity, you know. Morality is you get a picture from the black boy to whom you send five dollars or pounds a month, and oh my God. Yeah. Ethics is something much more naive in the sense of cruelty. You do it without any consideration of goodness and so on and so on. So in the first book, the notebook entitled, she tells the story of young twins living with their grandmother in a small Hungarian town during the last years of the World War II and the early years of communism. These twins, two young boys of seven, eight, are totally immoral. They lie, blackmail, kill, yet I think they stand for authentic ethical naivety. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, one day, the two boys meet in a forest a starved deserter and bring him some things he asked them for, food, blanket, and so on. Now I quote the novel. When we come back, the two boys narrate the story. When we come back with the food and blanket, he, the deserter, says, you are very kind, we say. We weren't trying to be kind. We brought you these things because you absolutely need them. That's all. If there ever was, my comment, a Christian ethical stance, this is it. No matter how weird the neighbors demand, the twins naively tried to meet the demand. So it's just, you know, this is what I like. I help you. No, I help you simply because you need help, not because I'm good. Uh, for example, uh, uh, one night the twins find themselves sleeping in the same bed with a German officer, a tormented gay masochist. Early in the morning they awaken and want to leave the bed, but the officer holds them back. A quote. Don't move. Keep sleeping. Uh, he tells the boys. They answer. We want to urinate. We have to go. Don't go. Do it here. We ask where. He says, on me, yes, don't be afraid. Peace on my face. We do it. Then we go out into the garden because the bed is all wet. You know, that's ethics. You know, what's the problem? The guy wants to be uh, a true work of love, I think. Then... The twins' closest friend is the priest's housekeeper, a young, voluptuous woman who washes them, uh, plays erotic games with them, and so on. Then something happens when a procession of starved, starved Jews is led through their town on their way to the camp. Quote, right in front of us, a thin arm emerges from the crowd. A dirty hand stretches out. A voice asks, bread. The housekeeper smiles and pretends to offer the rest of her bread. She holds it close to the outstretched hand, then, with a great laugh, brings the piece of bread back to her mouth, takes a bite and says, I'm hungry too, end of quote. So the boy simply decides to punish this woman. They stole some ammunition from that piece on my face German officer uh, and put it into 
this uh, housekeeper's kitchen stove so that when she lights fire in the morning, the stove explodes and disfigures her. I would do the same, absolutely. <laughs> the brothers also blackmail the local priest. Uh, they, they know that the priest has a little bit of money, and they know a girl, poor girl who is disfigured and starves with her mother. So they go to the priest and uh, tell, them, tell him that they know that she sexually molested some young girl. And the priest tells them it's not true, and they tell him, it's, uh, we don't care if it's true or not, but we will tell the people they will believe us, and so on. We want money, a certain amount of money every week. Then the shocked priest asks them, quote, it's monstrous. Have you any idea what you are doing? Yes, sir, blackmail. At your age, it's deplorable. Answer, Marxist. Yes, it's deplorable that we've been forced to this, but Herlip, the girl, and her mother absolutely need money. So there is nothing personal in it. Later in the novel, they become closest friends with the, this priest while going on to blackmail him. And when the girl and her mother start to work and can survive on their own, they simply went to the priest and say, thank you very much, we no longer need your money. Quote, keep it, you had given enough. We took your money when it was absolutely necessary. Now we are enough money to give some to the girl, Herlip. We, also, we have also taught her to work. So their cold serving others extends to killing them. For example, their grandmother asks them to put poison into her cup of milk because she is old. They say, don't cry, grandmother. If you really want it, we'll kill you. I mean, it's naive as it is, I claim. Such a subjective attitude in no way precludes a kind of a cold reflexive distance. One day, for example, the twins put on torn clothes and go begging. Passing persons gave them apples, biscuits, and so on. One of them even strokes their hair. Then another woman offers them to come to her home and do some work, for which she will give them something to eat. Then there is the dialogue, the last quote. We answer, we don't want to work for you, madam. We don't, we don't want to eat your soup or your bread. We are not hungry. She asks, then why are you begging? To find out what effect it has and to observe people's reactions. She walks off shouting, dirty little hooligans and impertinent too. Then the boys went. On our way home, we throw the apples, the biscuits, the chocolate and the coins into the tall grass by the roadside, but it is impossible to throw away the stroking on our hair. End of quote. If you ask me, this is where I stand. This is how I would love to be. An ethical monster without empathy, but doing the duty to help others with blind spontaneity while avoiding the other's disgusting proximity. With more people like this, the world would have been a pleasant place in which sentimentality would be replaced by a cold, cruel passion. I would like to be like these children. You kill if it's needed, you blackmail, you do your good. This is ethics for me. No sentimentality. Thank you very much. Who, who runs the show? Okay, yeah. but maybe because I'm a little bit myopic, so maybe if somebody can at least pretend that he's selecting. Sorry, if anyone who has a question ah. could wait for the microphone. Yeah, but there, okay, there was the first one. Yeah. Um, I wanted to know what your view, um, about mediocrity and violence. What do you mean? Mediocrity and violence. Do you think there's a violence in mediocrity? Because I think there is. Mediocrity in the sense of... 
Well, you could sort of like daytime TV, sort of like newspapers, sort of um, costume dramas on BBC One. Yeah, it, it, plus it depends, again, because, you know, what I like very much, wasn't it in one of the daily newspapers that I even maybe here I read or on the plane, I don't remember when they said, and I love, you know, the standard cliche, violent TV generates, breeds real-life violence. Yeah. Now some researchers are, are proving the, the contrary. And I like this thesis that violent TV... No, I didn't TV think it. I wasn't meaning in that sense. No, no, I know, I know. Yeah. I know, I know. Uh, okay. I would, I would say this. First, I would, again, have to go more into, more into what do you mean here by violence? Because if there is violence there, of course. Violence is everywhere. So this book is not a critique of violence. If anything, it's a book for violence. I think that our... This typically postmodern narcissistic fear of violence, you know, this politically correct against harassment. This is the worst type of ideology and oh. it's probably breeding a lot of violence. So that's my point, is that when you say violence, you must be more specific. Yeah, I was thinking when you're talking about zero subjectivity. Yeah. And in that sense, I'll, I'll, I mean, I wasn't thinking about that the other mm. day when I was thinking about coming here. But when you talked about zero subjectivity, yeah. that create that's a kind of quite a violent thing. Uh, and, and in a way, mediocrity yeah, might be yeah, a kind of zero subjectivity. Yeah, but here I'm a little bit too philosophical. The first thing I would say is that this kind of there is some kind of violence like that, which is for me again a kind of transcendental a priori of subjectivity <laughs> itself. In psychoanalysis, they, for at some point, tried to recuperate it through terms like symbolic castration, which I agree are not adequate, and so on. So uh, the, the, first, the second thing, association, that comes to my mind when you say mediocrity in violence, no? My obvious example here would have been, of course, Hannah Arendt, banality of evil, and so on. And yes, here I am more or less, not quite, but I don't have time to go now into it, on, on her side. That is to say... Uh, for me, uh, what we usually perceive as violence is basically a form of impotence. In the sense of, I wait a minute, I'm referring to you now and to me. For example, you had a father. Okay, stupid question, obviously. Isn't it that didn't you feel already as a child that if the father, I hope he didn't, actively beats you, it may hurt, but for me, when he did it to me, I always distinctly experienced it as, as his impotence. A true authority doesn't beat. He just looks at you yes, and you tremble. Exactly. Whenever this explodes, a true violence, a true authority is a threat of violence. You, know, like, you just look. You know, like, the moment you explode, and in this sense, I will tell you an amusing story, criticizing my editor, not the British one, but the American one. Originally, there was a phrase in the manuscript that the problem with Hitler is that he wasn't violent enough. Now, of course, the Americans went bananas. Now, like, oh, he should have killed all of the Jews or what? No, no. my point was a very simple one, that all this explosion of anti-Semitic violence and so on was for me clearly, him, I'm old-fashioned Marxist, you know. It was precisely to keep, basically, the capitalist relations, however we call it. He was a coward, basically. I think that, and why, in what sense do I mean this? Precisely in the Hannah Arendt sense, you know, I report on this, I think this remained in the book, this was not censored, how one of the most disgusting ways to rehabilitate, not really rehabilitate, but flirt with Nazism. And I was shocked, it became fashionable in my part of Europe. All of a sudden, three, four years ago, 
the ski champions, very mysteriously, don't ask me why, in Slovenia, in Croatia, started, when they were asked by journalists, how is it that, how are you prepared for tomorrow's race, started to use serially, many of them. The example, like one said, I'm ready as German army was on the 21st of June, 41, no? And then when asked, they said, of course, Hitler did horrible things, I don't, but they were ready. They were horrible, you know, and I think that we should take even this from, from Hitler. He was a coward. We, we shouldn't give, this is how I read Hannah Arendt, we shouldn't uh, give them, concede to them, to persons like Hitler, the, how should I call it, the dignity of some demoniac figure, you know, who, my God, he dared, he didn't dare, he didn't dare. Six million Jews and millions of others had to die, not because he was a heroic madman, but he, because he was basically a coward. And so in, here I agree again with this Arendt's thesis that uh, this would be for me the first association again with mediocrity and violence, that uh, terrible violence is always violence in this more subjective sense of uh, violent outbursts up to state terror is always impotence and the same goes for Stalinist terror read the new so-called revisionist historians Oleg Naumov the road to terror uh, you can see that Stalin was not a kind of an omnipotent madman oh why don't we kill a million of farmers there and so on the inner circle of Stalin experienced their situation as the one of total panic all the time we don't control it total paranoia and so on so uh, in this sense, yes, I think there is even an inherent link between violence and mediocrity. How should I put it? In, in the, in the, although probably you meant something very specific with those... You answered it with the impotency. With the impotency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but on the other hand, you see, I think that in a way in politics we should break this liberal deadlock with this liberal deadlock where whenever you say violence is something horrible and so on. No, I mean, uh, like, uh, that Marxist, uh, in a talk that I give at some Marxism conference at SOAS, like one mile north from here, I use that wonderful, if you want to see an example of good emancipatory violence, look at a film which, no wonder it's censored, uh, in the sense that it more or less disappeared, John Campert, Carpenters, yeah, yeah, that guy, Halloween. He's a big Hollywood progressive. They live. Do you know they live? It's a pure Hollywood Marxism, much better than Titanic and that shit, about an ordinary guy in slum, poor, who stumbles in an abandoned church on glasses. It's the critique of ideology. When you put on the glasses, you walk around and see the true message, like you see Coke, movies, blah, blah. When you put on the glasses, you see obey, don't think, procreate and so on, you know, like you see the real, it's such a beautiful naivety. And then there is the most beautiful sense of where he tries to force his best friend to put on the glasses. And the two had a terrible fight. You know, to get free, you must, this is by, or another example, which I always quote, like from Fight Club. Do you yeah, see Fight Club? When he, he yeah. this is, Progressive violence. I hate those liberals who claim this is a proto-fascist uh, film. I think it's a deeply progressive film. This is what I mean by divine violence, for example. Sorry if I blah blah. Okay. Please. There was there. No. 
Thank you very much. I, I, just to change the sort of nature of the discussion, yeah. I travelled up from my hometown in Hastings just to say thank you to you. Don't take me so seriously, but OK. Yeah, uh, yeah. I know, but, I mean, I, I had no idea until I stepped in the bookshop that you'd written so many books. Um, I, I find uh, in my life, and no doubt many other people do yeah. as well, that the law takes too much interest in me. Sorry, which one, The law takes too much interest in me. I'm not very interested in the law, but the law seems to be interested in me. Yeah. It's got things to say about what plants I can grow and not grow in my allotment. Yeah. It refuses to intervene when mindless people drive at excessive speed and great danger past my house. Uh, the authorities have decided to uh, close down the maternity hospital. Uh, the authorities don't intervene sufficiently to, def to defend my daughter from the violent attentions of her husband. Um, and uh, last week I learned that my post office is going to be closed down. Um, ordinary political organisations cannot help, they're silent. It depends on individuals speaking in front of things like the county council, the local mm. borough council, and engage with, um, well, engage with them, engage with politics, and engage with the law. I'm not a political person, but mm. I find myself drawn into this. No author really knows where their arrows will fall. Um, but in my case, your arrows have fell on my doorstep, and I find I draw <coughs> sufficient, a, a great deal of encouragement. Thank you, but I, but I agree with what oh, you you said right. precisely about their going there. I think exactly what you should do is you should somehow embarrass them, you know. Yes, quite, and, but what it means is a sort of politics grows out of this, but it's a different sort of politics than the one I've been grown up with in the last 40 years, and that's been someone on the left. It means being much more precise. It means really understanding the nature of the way we are governed, to be able to refine arguments, to be able to present a picture which can listen to. And, and if you take your advice, hmm? uh, it produces political effects. Um, I'm astonished that you could be criticised for actually saying do nothing. I mean, clearly, if one is politically aware, there is a mm. moment to speak and there's mm. a moment not to yeah, speak. Yeah, yeah, that's you put it um, there. Yeah, yeah. And all I'm saying is, I'm not, not so, I've not read your books or anything like that, but you've, you've struck something which is vital in, the, in, in politics. Uh, there were just two little other points I okay, wanted yeah. to make. One is about paradox. I, one of the pieces of legislation which seems to be a benefit to us is the Human Rights Act. I was absolutely astonished to actually just read a bit of the history of this and see that that marvellous clause which, which has got anti-discrimination meant in twice stems from an argument which Soviet communist lawyers had in the United Nations in 1947. And it's there built into our political system. Mm. And it's got real leverage to it, or appears to us, I hope that it does, which is a, a paradox. Um, the second point I've now actually I've lost in that, all that, how you just said mm. by saying, well, thank you very much. Again, you don't know exactly where what you say, where the words Definitely. fall, but they do lead to people uh, acting and finding succour and support and thought in what you say. Then I would just like to, you know, which formula I would then propose you? Did you see? Sorry, it's my typical jump to popular culture. Did you see Sergio Leone's uh, Once Upon a Time in the West? Absolutely. Yeah, you remember that scene when I think when Jason Roberts, the good guy, for the first time meet that harmonica man. You know, in that, in that small inn when he just mystically plays, he says, are you the guy who plays harmonica when he, you should have talked and talk when you should have better played harmonica? No. It's like this is for me the problem with today's left. No. They talk when she, they act when they shouldn't act and they don't act when they should act. So the artist, as you said, when not act or not act, when to act, where, when not to act, and so on. Uh, the second... Uh, 
okay, I will stop it so that I don't get lost. Thank you, sir. Ah, sorry, I now remember what I wanted to add. Uh, you know, also, maybe we should start rewriting history. For example, what annoys me with institutions like church liberals is what big kidnapping they accomplished when they are presenting as part of the central liberal or even Christian legacy what counts today as human rights to education, uh, vote for all, blah, blah, blah. But sorry, this was not at all part of early liberalism, or this was part of a long left popular struggle throughout the entire 19th century, which is why, for example, it pisses me off when, in my country, the church, Catholic church, tries to present itself as a beacon of, you know, freedom, democracy, and so on. My God, read that famous papal encyclica, De Rerum, I don't know what, from late 19th century, where they finally accept democracy. It explicitly says... In principle, we still prefer absolute monarchy. It's a compromise with times and so on. When people say the beacon of free thought, my God, you know that the Catholic Church abolished in 1960s their index of prohibited books. Make a simple experiment. Try to imagine modern civilization from which all the names which were at some point on the Catholic index are absent. Everything gets lost. Practically all the Goethe, Hegel, Descartes, Kant, Sartre, Heidegger, my God, name it. Sorry? Ah, I, I was more thinking of men, not its minor women. <laughs> yes, sorry. sorry, okay. No, so, uh, or another thing I learned. I'm horrified, no, of communist crimes and so on, but in a nice book, Fighting Dixie, I think, about the past of, of, of uh, anti-racist movement in the United States. You learn that till the late 1930s, the only organized group, although marginal, who, which was really simply for the racial equality, I'm sorry to tell you were the communists, till late 1930s, even the liberals, they spoke about, you know, in this disgusting way, oh my God, the suffering black, you know, like listening to these uh, charity people, oh, suffering children in favela, we need to help them, education. Nobody dared to propose, dared to propose full equality. So even here you have something which today even Bush speaks about as a normal ingredient on the, of the American dream. Sorry. Till the late 30s, it was the ingredient only of the American communist dream. <laughs> you said that constituting subjectivity is like Luria's Brain Man. I take it that's not the memory man, it's the other book, the brain man, the soldier who had a I whole... know, I know. I, unfortunately, yes. I don't know that one. I'm trying to get it. He yeah. had a hole shot through his head, yeah. uh, fighting the Germans. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, that's it. Now, he didn't lose all his memories. I know. He lost most of them. Yeah. He had fragments. He had fragments of neighborhoods of his experience as a child, and he desperately tried to build around that hole yeah. in yeah. his mind. Now, you're saying that's like the constitution of subjectivity. So does, is it that you're claiming that the modern person is someone who has a hole in their head? Yeah. Fine. And then, if that's so, what does that mean for everyday politics? And in particular, what does it mean for the restitution of communism? Okay, now, it would be... Okay, now, I know that one can here draw the almost bad taste, ironic conclusion that in communism we can guarantee that everybody will be with the hole, with the hole in, their, uh, in, their, uh, in their head. No, uh, what does it mean? 
first, uh, it means that it means in a general way. I think, okay, I will give you. I don't know what it means for communism. I don't have any big naive ideas. I'm much more. Uh, my analysis, in a way, much more tragic. I see the predicament of potential catastrophes, ecological and so on. And I don't see any, it is as if something is preventing people to act. For example, do you remember the last agreement, where was it, in Bali or when, about ecology? Everybody says a triumph. But you know what they, they really agreed about? They, the agreement was that they will continue to talk, Hoshteputi, that there will be another meeting or what. So I see problems, so I cannot answer this one fully about what does it mean for communism and so on. What I'm ready to say is that to take into account the way we have a hole in our head. Now, I take this only as a formula of how a certain tragic loss predicament is described into the very core of subjectivity and so on helps a lot if you try to understand human subjectivity through that perspective. It helps a lot to understand what for me is still a big enigma, the functioning of Stalinism. Because, you know, as I always repeat it, Stalinism is for me still a big enigma. What again and again surprises me is how those who, the most ferocious anti-communist critics, are in a way, and I, find, I must emphasize this because often they accuse me of, oh, you are playing, flirting with Stalinism half. No, I'm trying to understand it. For example, sorry if I repeat an old example. Did you see uh, the life of the others? Why? Although it's a very well-made film, I, I, with a little bit of mine, Communist past experience, I hate it. It's the, the guy is a fanatical anti-communist. You know, he comes from, is from East uh, German Prussian nobility, and that's his revenge. Like, they took my ba big estates there, now I will strike back. He's not evil enough. You know the basic story. A minister, evil minister, wants to seduce, sleep with big writers, playwrights, wife, so he he organizes the detailed uh, observation of him so that even planting something so that they will trap him, no? But this is so, everybody that I knew from the East laughs at this idea. Sorry, but something like this can happen in, in every also Western country. If you are uh, in a position of power with secret service, of course you can try to, I can try. The, what, every East German, ex-East German, will tell you what's wrong. If you take a figure like that writer, you are an international celebrity there, you would have been under total observation even if no minister wants to screw your wife. That's what gets lost in the film, that you don't need the evil minister, the system functions like that. No, okay, my point of this so that I don't get lost is that for me, uh, Stalinist communism is still, is still an enigma, a much bigger enigma even than Nazism. How could that happen? Even the most ferocious anti-communists don't give an answer. They, if you read people from which you can learn a lot, maybe at the level of facts like uh, Robert Conquest and others, they, they, in the last agency, it's a kind of a simple demonization, which is, they were really bad guys, how should I put it? No, okay, but how, why? Some, uh, 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 something is missing there. And I think, again, that changing the shift into this 
accepting that, how should I put it, trauma is written into the very constitution of subjectivity, does a lot to understand this phenomena. And to make a little bit of more propaganda, this book is part one of a, this book has a counter book, which will be called, sorry to cheat, the in defense of lost causes, to appear in two months by Verso, where uh, I will deal in detail with this problem of Stalinism in a chapter lovingly entitled, Simon Critchley will kill me for that one, how did Stalin save the humanity of man, something like that. No, it's a bad joke. I mean, it's a very sad, detailed analysis. So, uh, 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 and also, uh, yeah, I was asked to do another thing. Also, if some of you are interested more in this philosophical background of violence and so on, there will be a series of conferences and so on in Leeds and Manchester between 18th and 20th of in that mid-England area of March, where we will debate for days all this for days all this stuff. So, in other words, to answer you now with the final just uh, formulation, uh, I uh, I think that here I agree with my good friend Alain Badiou that we should not be afraid of. We should break out of this predominant historicist ideology. We need, we, we should not be afraid to propose this more fundamental thesis. This is what it means to be human and so on. No, you know, I, I think that today's predominant historicism, where first you are not even allowed to make a firm, like it's not allowed to say this is man. What you are only allowed to say is the statement man is rational is possible only under these discursive power positions or whatever. No, So that all you can do is this histor historical discursive analysis. I think that this is a dangerous ideology. I think that we should risk kind of a fundamental philosophical anthropological thesis and so on and so on. Sorry if I, I didn't answer you, but whatever, I tried to do <laughs> Uh, I've just got a, a question about uh, the difference between violence and like uh, violence as ideology. Violence and violence and violence as ideology. Uh -huh. In terms of like uh, like sort of the uh, the idea of Christopher's of um, yeah. um, violence and human rights and um, yeah. pacifism, um, and uh, the responsibility that violence as a necessity evokes. Um, okay, it's contextualised. Uh, just in terms of the fact that the if you if you try and say that you're passive then you will include a, a necessary violence which will then erupt again yeah. in terms of a death drive. Is, um, I guess I'm trying to try clarify what your, your position on violence is in that sense. Uh, violence as... Um, Sorry, I just didn't get the last word. You're right. trying to clarify my position on violence. Eh? Just, yeah, your position on violence in terms of Christopher death drive responsibility. Again, I don't know how to begin without developing the, uh, developing the whole notion... Uh, uh, what fascinates me, of course, it's uh, the way, the very renunciation, the violent nature of the standard theories of non-violence. How you have today's whole, for example, today's entire way, I, I read a very disgusting, depressive text recently in one, it was in my hotel room, that's how I got hold of it, uh, some uh, extra number of Newsweek where they report about the new lives of the super-rich. And the idea is that they are now moving, not only living in these secluded, gated communities, but it's 
moving into a higher level now. You have now already networks of private clinics. They even don't go shopping. They make a deal that shops are opened only for them. They organize private. The, the entire, so uh, I claim that, uh, how should I put it? Uh, uh, this would be my first point, that how... Uh, this is why I begin with that old story about about uh, uh, about men stealing something from the factory and so on. How uh, the elementary dialectical twist, if there is a basic lesson of the book, it's this one. When you perceive something as violent, it means you perceive something as disturbing, violently perturbing, whatever, a certain state of thing. And the, the question to ask is, this would be another topic of this, my eternal motive of parallax. What about shifting perspective and perceiving violence, which is already has to go on so that that normal state of things, which you perceive as non-violent, has to, can, can reproduce itself? That's what always fascinated me, which is why at the level of the analysis of ideology, for example, what fascinates me is not only how you construct the enemy who disturbs you, but all these, how should I call them, uh, ideological uh, underground of violent, obscene rituals which sustain, which, uh, which sustain, the, uh, which sustain the, visible, uh, the visible order. So again, uh, 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 I think that... Uh, uh, that the first duty today is effectively to, if you want to be serious with violence, is nonetheless to take into account how, how much of violence is practiced precisely by countries where the predominant ideology is the extreme evasion of, the, the, is the extreme fear of violence in the guise of political correctness and so on, where basically, why do I, do, I don't like political correctness, but basically everything, I look you into the eye, you will say, if you are, I hope you are not politically correct, visual rape. I say a dirty word, word verbal rape, and so on and so on. You know, this extreme narcissistic fragility. I, I look at, I, I, I think that that's, that's the thing to do, to see, to see the extreme violent, potential of our today's fear of violence. Now, I'm not here a neo-fascist. I'm far from, uh, far from uh, uh, claiming in some kind of a naive proto-fascist modernist way that, you know, the redeeming uh, character of violence and so on and so on. I'm just saying that uh, getting freedom, freedom to become truly free, it's a very violent experience. I don't believe in this inner journey stuff, you know. You look deeply into... No, freedom is something that hurts in a very existential way. My God, this is so stupid. No, don't. No, it looks as if I planned it as the final deep thought, you know. <laughs> Horror, sorry. No, but I hope that I clarified at least some things that... You see, not that I have some big true positions that my friends... I, I don't mean now ironically this, like Simon Critchley misunderstood and so on, is that my position is much simpler here. I openly admit it. I don't have a, 
Like, for example, with Critchley, I had a wonderful dialogue, no, once, when he made a nice point. You know, when I once mockingly described my position as that I'm like a magician, I have a hat, hat, in the sense of describing the situation, but I don't yet know the, the rabbit to pull out, no? And Critchley said he can be funny sometimes in a very nice way that, uh, evil nice way that, that, uh, that no, he is for the proliferation of rabbits. Do all, let's all hundreds of rabbits, no? But then I was tempted to answer him, you know, like, okay, hundred rabbits, but let's take a closer look at these rabbits, you know, no? like, what kind of rabbits? For example, uh, I asked him and then he started to withdraw. Okay, you, I think I am, I, like, if you follow his book, Infinitely Demanding, like, okay, let's talk about big fat rabbit called Hugo Chavez, no? Like, what would he say about that rabbit? <laughs> no? So, uh, 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 how I put it? My position is very pragmatic, open. I think that we are more and more approaching almost an apocalyptic situation ecologically, socially, and so on. I effectively agree with the last analysis of Wallerstein, for example, where he predicts that one possible scenario is that what goes on now in France, all these suburbs, riots, that... This is one possibility that Europe will slowly develop into this kind of, a, how should I call it, uh, inner civil war situation, tensions, and so on. I think that at all, at all possible levels, I see explosive tensions. We are postponing them, so we will be forced to act. And that's what I mean by I don't have a, the rabbit to pull out. I don't see a clear way. My God, I'm not a stupid Leninist proletarian revolution. Where? Who will do it? How? And so on. My, I think just that we will be pushed to act, and I'm here then extremely pragmatic, and we should be totally promiscuous here, in the sense of do this, do that, realistic demand, a bomb here or there, uh, a little bit of passivity where it's not expected, and so on. That's, I'm very open and pragmatic here. I don't have big answer, and I think that, that those who think that they have big answers, whatever they are, are effectively bluffing. I think that the left did not yet do properly its self-criticism, how should I put it, no? That they, this is what I wanted to do in the text, Resistance is Surrender, the crucial part where nobody truly attacked me, and that's what I, what I would love to be refuted is in the long review of books text. You remember, if you saw it, the first part where I simply enumerated six, seven, or even eight positions, which I see, and all of them more or less unsatisfying. Show me where I am there wrong. I think I made a very honest attempt to give a kind of a non-systematic series of positions, which are all, more or less, not quite all, but many of them, quite interesting, so, so, and so on, but somehow, somehow, they are, somehow they are not enough. Again, I see, I see a problem here, and maybe that's what we should do, simply admit it. I think in deference to your jet lag, we'll have two more questions, is that all right? Will you give one? Ah, no, 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 no something no. really evil. Yeah, no, here is comes this, yes, on one condition that you ask me a question now. Um, this, uh, does this already can, count well, as a first my, question? My, my question is, can we have two more questions, please? Okay, sorry. Okay, please. right. Please, okay, Here's, please. Here comes the first one. Okay, please. I, I just wanted to ask if you had an opinion on William Volman's book, Rising Up and Rising Down, where he tries to construct what he calls the calculus of violence by ah, that's interesting. looking at people's Thanks justifications. Thanks for telling me, because to be quite open, I don't have an opinion because I don't know the book. Like, I mean, I bluff enough so that I don't need to bluff here, no? So, no, but... Uh, there's a seven-volume edition, uh, uh, there's a one-volume edition, uh, 
Ah, did he have the same problem as, as uh, Brandom or Kant that the first big fat version, nobody wants to read it, so he had to write introduction to himself? How the Uh, yeah, yeah, so, no, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the second one? Uh. Yeah, I just wanted to raise what I thought was quite a relevant example, especially when you were talking about the super-rich and their private developments. Yeah. Um, I saw something in China which I thought was quite remarkable, which was a huge advertisement for a, a private condominium community uh, right surrounding the, the, the new development, mm -hmm. and it had been translated rather badly into English as um, come and live in a perfection concentration camp. Uh, yeah, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just interested <laughs> yeah, in yeah. hearing your reflections on that. And in the future, do you think it might be true to coin, a, coin an aphorism that in the future everybody will aspire to live in a concentration camp? No, but that's a very, that's a very good point because I think this is, I tried to convince Agamben about it. What always shocked me with his idea of this, you know, concentration camp, I think this is absolutely what we should do. And I think this is, you know, when Agamben is asked, okay, apart from these vague phrases of Benjamin violence, divine violence, what is his, to put it in brutal terms, positive vision? The only indications he gives is to limbo. You know, this old theological problem, limbo, like what happens to children before they are baptized? They didn't sin, so they shouldn't be sent to hell. So the idea is that of a limbo, in a kind of eternal bliss, but the punishment is they don't know God, no? They are outside, but in an eternal bliss. And he says this would be for him a happy, no? I'm not sure it would have been as happy as he thinks. I think that his positive ideal, that his secret dream is a good concentration camp. I mean, my friend who, whose book I published, Lorenzo Chiesa, you know the book in my... Uh, MIT series, the, uh, the, the Subjectivity and Otherness. He's now writing a very interesting book on, uh, basically it's an attack on return of religion in, in contemporary Italian leftist thought. Negri, uh, Agamben, uh, Vatimo, they all, in all of them, you, and, and this he will try to develop there, of this absolute ambiguity of Agamben, like he's focusing on concentrate, it's almost that, what, when he writes about concentration camps, it's almost his message between the lines is what Marx says about modern industry, that it's all, every, all communism is already there, you just have to change the form a little bit, no? So I, I think, so I, I take very seriously what you said, and to give you another amusing example, since we are here in United Kingdom, did you, I saw a TV report on, you know what's now the latest fashion, I know, I was there, uh, in, uh, three months ago in China, near Shanghai, you know what's now the fashion among the very rich there, and there are many of them now, to build not only a gated community, but a gated community, which is a perfect replica of some imagined, idealized Western countryside. They built kind of a, like Essex, Surrey, and so on, a perfect small English village for the rich with everything. You have this, uh, you have Barclays Bank, you have Anglican Church, you have even Tesco stores and so on, absolute copy of, and, and now they are building small American, this is the latest, they're building small American towns already, they're, they're, they're building even some Sicilian, Italian small towns, it's, it's, 
it's, so there's it's, even a Harrow School there now. Sorry? There is even a Harrow School there now, the public school. There's, yeah. a, there's an offshoot uh, they did of even, uh, uh, Yeah. I wonder, but, okay, to conclude, I will give one to you British where they cannot do it. They cannot do cricket. I claim that you, only you can understand it. I was once watching three hours cricket. I, I didn't get it. Somebody throws a ball. On the other hand, somebody starts to run. Even some British men admitted to me that you cannot, that you have to be basically uh, upper middle class homosexual and secretly KGB agent from the 30s in Oxford or what to really understand it, you know. So whatever they take from you, cricket, they will not take it, I think, the Chinese. Mr. Zizek, thank you very thank much you indeed. Very. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 